You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, All those who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would help us, O Spirit, that you would help us, that you would lift our eyes to Jesus, that you would lift our hearts to Jesus, that you would lift our hands to Jesus, all for our increasing joy for your glory in this earth. God, we pray that you would help us now in this hour to uh, see you in your word, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight is a torch night and a lower elementary night. Lower elementary, if you have a sticker on, you can head out with your leaders and teachers. We're back at it in 2024, so you guys have a great time. As they are filing out, I saw Jordan and Debbie come in. Uh, Luca Rivera is his first Sunday with us, born on Tuesday. And then uh, also on Tuesday, the same day, Ben and Maddie Johnson had their twins, Gloria and Ben Johnson. She had twins and was in the hospital for much longer, so I don't think they're back yet with us. All on Kyle Stevens' birthday. All right. Good job, Kyle. You did it. Yeah. Well done, Kyle. Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Good to see you. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I would love to meet you after this service. Um, Well, here we go. Here we go. It is now officially election season. Uh, Last Monday was the Iowa caucus. Tuesday night is the New Hampshire primary, and here we go. Uh, Though this season never really ends, we are now hearing more than ever uh, all the campaign speeches, all the stump speeches, all the debates, lots of claims being made, and here is what every single claim is about. It doesn't matter which party you're listening to. It does not matter which candidate you're listening to. Here's what every single person, man or woman, who is running for a political office is trying to say. The candidate will identify what he or she thinks is the most important threat or threats to American life, and then he or she will prescribe two, three, four, fifty different things that makes he or she the most be- or the best suited one to actually do something about the biggest threats. 
both in a reactive or in a proactive way. So the threats might be foreign powers, here is my defense plan. The threat is economic, here is my trade or tax plan. The threat is medical, here is my healthcare or insurance plan, or more so today than any of those policy concerns, the threats are cultural, here is why I can lead us out of this. And on and on and on. Really every candidate is selling us on the flourishing life, on the good life. This is why I, the political candidate, can lead us into the better life, the hopefully easier life for, for you, for all of us, or at least for the most of us. The problem in this moment of American politics and culture is that we very, very much disagree on what the threats are. And therefore, because we disagree on what the threats are, we disagree on what the way forward is. But all are promising deeper, flourishing life that will make things easier for the most amount of people. What you would never expect to hear in a campaign speech is something like this, vote for me because I will make your life more difficult. Vote for me because I will raise taxes. I will give you less of your paycheck to keep for yourself. And in fact, when you have less to keep for yourself and we take, the government takes more money, we're gonna waste it anyway. Vote for me and I will li make life more dangerous for you in the immediate and in the short term. I know other candidates are out there trying to unite families, unite communities, recreate some sense of social fabric, but vote for me and I'll divide it all. Wait, what? Like if you heard a candidate say that, you would say, no thank you. Uh, next, please, you are offering absolutely nothing that I want. I'm going to vote for the other guy. Well, at first glance, this seems like exactly the kind of thing that Jesus is doing in Luke 14. Most people, when they are trying to build a movement, will do everything they can to attract a following, to make, to make promises of a flourishing life that will attract more and more. Jesus, though, here in Luke 14, seems to be doing everything he can to repel any sense of a momentum-building movement from growing around him. He wants to be very upfront on what it means to follow him by clearly setting expectations and, and clearly commuting, communicating to all who would hear him why following him matters. So tonight we're going to consider this short text by asking two questions of what you heard Chris just read from Luke 14. What does it cost to follow Jesus? And what does it take to follow Jesus? What does it cost you? And what will it take you to follow him. First of all, what does it cost to follow Jesus? So over the past many chapters of Luke, Jesus has been confronting the Jewish leadership over and over and over and over again, warning them about their external obedience that has no real correspondence to inner love for God, warning them that they actually do not understand what is happening amongst them in, the mit in their midst, who is with them in their midst, who is teaching and confronting them in their midst, the Messiah the prophet of God, the priest of God, the king of God who teaches and works and reigns over them even now. And so if the Jewish leadership do not teach what it means to follow God, if the Jewish leadership do not understand what it takes or what it means to follow God, what does it mean? What does it mean to know God and to follow him? What is required? What should the people do? Luke 14, 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said, okay, everyone, here's what it means to follow God to them. Verse 26, 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Wait, what? This is a startling thing that Jesus has just said. I've heard skeptics of Christianity point to this very verse in the Bible to say that and to show that the the Bible is deeply immoral. The Bible should be ignored and actively suppressed because of this. Like, what kind of model of society building is this? The ripping apart of families, the teaching of children to despise their elders, to grow up to despise future spouses and children, even to despise or hate his or her own life, like in some sort of masochistic danger to oneself. Skeptics might read this. Perhaps you read this this week or heard Chris read it tonight, and you said, wait, what? This is the very opposite of human flourishing. Get this stuff out of here. It's dangerous. But in this first cost of following Jesus, let's consider what Jesus has just said from two perspectives. From, first of all, just a literary perspective and then a theological perspective. First, this English word, hate, isn't quite doing what skeptics of the Bible are accusing it of. It most certainly does not mean to despise or treat poorly with anger or certainly even violence. We might interpret this word hate to simply mean to love less. Let's just look at one way it gets used in the Old Testament. In Genesis 29, verse 30, we read that Jacob loved Rachel, his wife, more than her sister, his second wife, Leah. In the very next verse, Genesis 29, 31, we read this. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Did Jacob despise Leah? Did he hate her? No, Jacob isn't commended in this. In the coming years, the narrative becomes one of actually the the strongest implicit condemnations of polygamy in the Bible. But Jacob, while he did not despise Leah, he had certainly ranked her. He had ranked his affections first for Rachel, and then in a very distant second, Leah. This is not good, but this is what the word is actually doing. This word hate gets used similarly in several other places to describe a ranked love, to describe a prioritization. So first, Jesus is saying, you must rank your affections. That I, Jesus, must get first place in your heart, and then everything else, everyone else, is a very distant second. This is likely what he means in Revelation 2 when he warns the Ephesian church that they have left their first love. Why have you left your first love? It may not mean as in first, like in, as in chronology of time, like your first crush in the seventh grade or something like that. Why have you left your first crush? No, why have you left your first as in priority? Why have you left your first primary love? So he isn't calling for despising or dishonoring of family or parents, nor is he calling for people to ignore or actively disobey the third commandment of you shall love or, or you shall honor your father and mother. But he is calling for the merciless cutting off of all loyalties when they are in contradiction or they are in opposition to following Jesus. But even with this literary perspective, some still might see this as deeply immoral. How can Jesus demand this? I love my family. How could you demand that I love something or someone more than what is immediately in front of me? 
And this gets us to the theological realities. Jesus is speaking to a culture that absolutely values family and community even more than we do. A culture of honoring elders and mother and father far more deeply than we do. So while even if we see Jesus isn't meaning that to be his disciple, now we have to cultivate some sort of active and growing hatred for our parents or our spouse or our children. To make this claim, Jesus actually has to be someone of immense authority. We've seen cult leaders make similar claims, saying things like, I don't care what your parents or your spouse or your children think, cut them off for the cause. Cut them off for the truth. And I think most of us, when we see cult leaders today making such claims, we intuitively know that is immoral. It is sin. It is idolatry. But if Jesus is who Luke has been portraying him to be, the creator and sustainer of all things, very God of very God, light of light, life of life, then he actually is able to make these demands. Because this is what makes Jesus different than David Koresh in Waco in the early 90s, or Joseph Smith, or Mohammed, or even these Pharisees. For any created being to demand absolute loyalty, to demand utter and absolute complete heart and mind worship, for any created being to make demands such as that is sin. That person That created, limited person cannot hold the loyalty and worship of all people, much less of any one person. That person, like all humans, is sinful and selfishly motivated. They don't know what's right. They can't see what their actions and the consequence of their movements will be in a week, much less a year from now or a decade from now. A finite person who demands sacrificial life devotion causes you to sin when you give them your life. It is small-minded, it is short-sighted, it is unfulfilling, and it is temporary idolatry. But for Jesus, the second person of the triune God, to make this claim over your life, who is not a finite being, but is an infinite being, an infinite being who has created all things, who has created you, who does not just do things that are good and just and true and right, but who is goodness and truth and justice and righteousness. He does not need our hearts. He does not need our minds or our lives, but as the infinite life and joy giver, the most loving thing that he can do for you is to demand your very life. For him not to demand your life is to allow parts of you to wander off toward other finite things, which would be idolatry and which will leave you empty. Only he can fill. For him to allow this of our hearts to wander off into other finite things would be sinful of him, which he cannot do. The best possible version of you in whatever station you find yourself in The best possible version of you if you are a child, the best possible version of you as a husband, the best possible version of you as a wife, the best possible version of you as a father or mother or employer or employee is to prioritize Christ more than any of those roles, to be filled and conformed to his identity. Because when you are filled and conformed to his identity, you will love others more than you love yourself which is exactly what we've been thinking about all the way throughout the Gospel of Luke. 
the way to loving others, the way to serving others, is to actually go down, to humble yourself, to become more like Christ. So you want to be a better husband? Don't practice more away time, more self-care. Only when your self-care is about reading the Bible more, is about praying, is about knowing Christ more, that will make you a better husband, will make you a better wife, will make you a better child, will make you a better employer or employee. The upside-downness of Jesus' kingdom is that, the, is that this world doesn't understand that. How can Jesus so immorally demand that I ignore what is immediately in front of me and love him more than them? That doesn't make sense. But the way that you love them most is to love him more than them. But, and here's the big if in this situation, when they demand, when all of these other people in your life demand your highest love and priority, well, you must choose. So, and to show my hand here for the rest of the sermon, Jesus is actually not a political candidate asking that you vote for him so that you'll actually then invite some sort of harder life. He's not asking you to follow him so that you'll have ruined families, ruined relationships in your wake. He's not saying, hey, are you the kind of person who really likes to struggle? Are you the kind of person that likes difficulty in your life because it makes you stronger? Are you the kind of person that likes the satisfaction of completing hard things? Well, I'm your guy. Are you the kind of like Navy SEAL kind of person? If I got a religion for you, it's going to be hard, but you're going to ultimately look back at the end of your life and feel satisfied with a job well done. That is not what Jesus is saying. Less like a political candidate, Jesus comes to us like a mountain Sherpa. And he comes to people who are lost in the blizzard on the top of the mountain, unable to find their way to safety and rest. And he says, come with me if you want to live. Follow me. I know the way down, and it's going to be hard. All of these supplies that you have, that you think you need, you don't. In fact, they're just going to be burdensome. Just leave them. They're going to slow you down. It'll make things harder, not easier. Some of the people in our group here that I've come to invite to follow me, some of these people here, perhaps your parents, perhaps your siblings, perhaps your children, perhaps your wife or your husband, they might tell you that other trails are quicker, that other trails are easier, that the destination at the end of this trail is better. But they are not. It is not. You must hear my voice. Hear it above all else and follow it above all else. And if others are not willing to follow me, even those whom you love the absolute most in this world, you must be willing to leave them and trust me instead. Hear my voice and follow me. This is the cost of discipleship. Following Jesus at all costs, where Jesus is ultimate in everything in life. He is first priority. He is the voice in my ears and in my heart that I'm listening for the most and the most immediately willing to follow. He is the gravitational center of my universe. And all other things in my life must find the right orbit around him, the right priority in following him. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me 
cannot be my disciple. And just look at the progression here. In verse 26, Jesus is saying, if you don't hate all these people, if you don't prioritize me above them, then you cannot come to me. If anyone comes to me, you must do this. But now in verse 27, this person must carry his cross and come after me. First, a person comes to Jesus. Then a person comes behind Jesus, follows after Jesus. Faith does not end after an initial decision to come to Jesus. It begins. It begins in following Jesus. It is both the beginning and the journey. But where do Jesus' people follow him? Where do they go? Where are they moving to? Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Wait, what? I think that's like the third time I've said like, wait, what? This sermon. And it probably won't be the last. Because this does not make sense. This, he is a horrible political candidate. Of course, to us, this cross language isn't all that surprising. We know where this story is headed. We know that Jesus himself will carry his own cross to the place of his coming death. But every time that Jesus talks about his coming death, his disciples don't get it. They do not understand what in the world he could possibly be talking about. And they presumably really don't understand when it comes to Jesus saying, yeah, if you want to be my disciple, a person who follows me, a person who sits at my feet, a person who becomes my student, a person who takes on my philosophy of life, you're going to need to grab a giant piece of wooden Roman execution equipment and carry that to the place of your own death. Wait, what? This bear your own cross language is directly related to what Jesus said in the prior verse. If you do not hate, yes, even your own life. If you rank your own life, your comfort, your ease, your self-advancement over me, in fact, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my student. You cannot possibly learn from me. If you are preserving your life, if you are prioritizing your life, your desires, what you want most, you will never learn from me. Now again, Jesus seemed to have not taken any marketing classes in college, did he? He's likely not doing a very good job of like dipping his net in the waters and grabbing the easy pickings of the fish in the aquarium because who would want to do, who would want to live the kind of life that Jesus is marketing here? Anyone? No one. Because Jesus' message is not what we often hear today, is it? Jesus' message is actually not, hey, have you had a hard and difficult life? Have you struggled with broken relationships and anxiety? Have you struggled through addiction and weakness and self-doubt? Then have I got a gospel for you? Have I got a life program for you? Have I got a religion for you? I'm here for you so that you can instead of loss and of difficulty in your life, you can instead then experience only power, only victory. I'm here to get rid of all of your sadness and pain and instead transform your life into one big happy clappy sing-along. That's not what Jesus is offering. Instead, he's doing the opposite. Following him means the hard and the difficult will get harder, will get more difficult. It may mean the loss of a job. Following Jesus may mean that you don't date or marry someone who you otherwise might want to. 
Following Jesus might mean that the relationships at work that spill into social weekends of temptation toward distraction of things other than him remain outside of his orbit. You might lose out on some of the things that you think you may want. And Jesus is saying, I want you to understand all of that at the outset. How can I help you understand? Look, you, under, you intuitively understand this in many other areas in your life. Let me give you an example, verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? If you're going to start some big construction project, you would never begin it unless you had enough money to see it through. Or if you didn't have the, the loans or the money lined up for the future to complete the project. If you were to add on to your house, several of you have done this since COVID, to build home offices or guest rooms. What's worse than not having a home office? What's worse than not having a guest room? A half-finished home office or guest room. You ran out of money halfway through, and now this project, this addition, is Worse than just taking up space, worse than that, it doesn't have a roof. It's not completed. These rooms, these additions are completely pointless. They are thousands of dollars. They are potentially tens of thousands of dollars sunk into exactly that. Sunk. Gone. A waste of time and money. Money that you could have used for other things that you now just basically just threw into the lake and it sank to the bottom. Gone. Wasted. You needed 10,000. You only had five. You got halfway through and what a waste of $5,000. And to make things worse, verse 29, otherwise when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. Not only is this addition taking up space and it wasted your money, you've ruined your reputation too. The only thing that you have to show for it is a monument to your own foolishness. You did not count the cost. You made a rash and hasty initial decision and did not understand what was ahead of you. You did not count the cost, literally. You literally did not count how much supplies and labor was going to cost. You did not count, you just went for it. What a fool. Don't do that. Jesus says, following me is hard. Count the cost. Make sure that you understand what the project is ahead of you. This requires reflection, not just reaction. Christianity makes for a terrible hobby. Do you agree? Christianity is a terrible hobby. If, just like Kyle said earlier, if all of this isn't true, what a waste of time. What a waste of our resources. There are better ways to spend time and resources if this is not true. If you will not, and you actually have not considered what it looks like to see it, see, to see the, the end of the project through to its completion. What a waste of time if we only intend to get halfway through this. If we only intend to live this Christian life with one foot in and one foot out. Still don't get it? Verse 31. Or what king? going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. So you're a king of a small town. 
with 10,000 soldiers under your command, but you see an army coming and approaching you with 20,000 soldiers. Unless you have some trap, some amazingly incredible strategy to level, level the playing field, if you go out into open battle with, against an army that is twice your size, you will lose. 10,000 of your men will now be dead men, and now your army of 10,000 is now an army of zero. If you were this king in that situation, you would not be hasty. You would be careful. You would be deliberate. And if you cannot win, you recognize the army twice your size, that you cannot beat this army, then verse 32, while the other, the other army is yet a great way off, he, you, the king, sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. If you want to live, if you want your soldiers and their families to live, you will instead make peace with the more powerful king. Now in these two parables, the tower, the tower builder who runs out of money and the outnumbered king, the tower builder has an option. The decision to begin the tower begins with him at the outset. A wise man would consider the project in front of him before he begins. But the outnumbered king has the decision forced upon him, doesn't he? He also has to consider the project in front of him before he begins. Like the tower builder who must consider the costs and the benefits of the project, the king must consider the costs and the benefits of either allying himself with the stronger king or rejecting the stronger king. But he had better consider, he had better choose wisely. And if he doesn't, if you don't, you will not reach the end of the project. You will not reach the end of the stronger king's expansion. You will not keep walking behind Jesus with your own cross. You will not prioritize him above all else. And on the mountain paths, you will listen to other voices, which will lead to your death. In other words, verse 33, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Unless you go, go on and go out mercilessly cutting off other loyalties in your life, you cannot be my disciple. Three times here in these few verses, he's telling people, you cannot be my disciple. Into verse 26, into verse 27, into verse 33. Not very attractional, this Jesus guy is. But this is the cost. Everything. Following Jesus costs everything, meaning everything that is a distraction. Everything that is about the self and the promotion of self, it will distract you to death. Now, again, I've already tipped my hand here that the life that Jesus offers isn't just choosing the hard and difficult just to choose the hard and the difficult. It's choosing ultimate joy in life. But if it costs everything to follow Jesus, putting anything in my life that is second, anything in my life and everything in my life into second place, into second priority in my life, when it is a distraction or when it is in competition to my following Christ, I must be willing to sacrifice family relationships. I must be willing to sacrifice financial success or career advancement. I must be willing to sacrifice time and comfort and ultimately the self, the death of myself. And while all that's true, 
And while this text is meant to have a a culling effect, a separating or filtering of those who would follow Jesus for Jesus' sake, not just for what he might give them, not just using him for personal and social advancement, how do we square this teaching with the very same Jesus who says, here, come with me and do all the hard things, but other places in like Matthew 10, come to me all you who labor, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will make your life easier, not harder. I've talked to many of you over the past couple of weeks who in reading this passage, Luke 14, 25 through 35, so many times in your life, in reading this passage, you were filled with doubt. You were filled with spiritual anxiety because you were afraid you weren't doing enough. You weren't doing enough for Jesus. You were not expecting enough from Jesus. You weren't spiritually radical enough. You weren't sacrificing enough. And for some in this room, perhaps you absolutely should feel those things. Maybe you did just come to Jesus in initial faith, but you haven't come after him. You weren't following him. You weren't learning from him. It's not just that he doesn't have first priority in your life. He doesn't even have third, fourth, fifth, or a hundredth priority in your life. He is God of God and light of light. He not only deserves your whole life, but he is the surest path to joy. Following him will be hard. There will be distraction and opposition. So this requires reflection and not necessarily emotional reaction. But many others of us in this room, and now for the the rest of our time, I want to hopefully deprogram a little of the stress and anxiety that this passage maybe has caused you and instead use it to hopefully, Lord willing, fill us all with assurance. We've thought about the cost of following Jesus, but now let's consider what it takes. What does it take to follow Jesus? In these last two verses, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says that he wants his disciples to be what he is. He wants them to be salt. He wants them to be the thing that gets into and preserves the meat, the culture against decay. Salt is long-lasting, and it preserves, and it preserves, and it preserves. But if it stops doing what what it is intended for, if it has lost its saltiness, then it is just like white sand, like tiny white rock particles, which is useless. You do not keep unsalty salt around. It's got to keep its role and function. It's got to preserve. It's got to, we might say, persevere. Maybe another comparison would be a car. If your car runs out of gas, of what use is it? None. It's a pretty crummy shelter. Like, you wouldn't want to live there if it ran out of gas. It can't move anywhere by itself. It needs the gas. If it's lost its fuel, what good is it? Nothing. You throw it out. You take it to the junkyard. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Got it? Now you may be thinking, wait, I thought you said you were going to try to give me assurance of my faith. This just sounds like another threat. Don't mess up what Jesus is asking you to do. Don't mess up what Jesus is asking you to be, or he'll throw you out. And we read this on the heels of the rest of the passage and think, well, 
I really haven't ruined any family relationships in my life. I haven't lost my job for Jesus. I haven't quit my job for Jesus and moved to the other side of the world so that others might know Jesus. It's all just very ordinary, this life is. It's not at all very radical. It doesn't feel very sacrificial. But have you ever thought about the importance of this word, this word disciple, in the passage? You must be willing to do all of these things, and it may come to that. Or you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my student. You cannot be my learner. You cannot be my follower. Does Jesus say in these warnings that if you do not renounce all, you will not be saved? That if you do not renounce all, you do not belong to me? You cannot belong to me if you choose sin, choosing self over me, because if you do, I'll throw you out. No, he doesn't say that. And how do we know that he doesn't mean that? Well, Peter is present here, isn't he? He is one of these hearers. In the coming months, Peter most assuredly will not follow Jesus in the carrying of his own cross. He denies Jesus, abandons him. What Jesus teaches here are not necessarily entry requirements for salvation. They are expectation setters for when the distraction and opposition of life inevitably comes. And like Peter, at many stages of a disciple's life, a disciple will not exhibit these characteristics. Jesus' people are not often clear replicas of the life and character of Jesus. But they are, as Paul says, being conformed more and more, slowly but surely into his image. The trajectory of their life is into the orbit of Jesus, the priority of Jesus. Jesus as ultimate in my life, ultimately the course of my life. Because if you've found the treasure, what else is there to look for? Even if we, like wandering sheep, get distracted and lose the way, Jesus, the good shepherd, finds and nudges and corrects his sheep back onto the path, even as they continue to listen to and respond to his voice, as they keep themselves in the keeping love of God. Now, sometimes that means decisive actions, decisive decisions, where faith and courage are required. We live in a culture which is still living on the fumes of centuries of a general Christian culture where it is true that our families might think that we're a little weird and we are taking things a little too seriously in that weird church that he or she, like you guys are like, you're doing a lot with those people, right? It's a little weird. But if you become a member of Christ Church, you're still going to get invited to Thanksgiving. You're still going to get invited to the nieces and nephews' birthday parties. But for others, for millions upon millions in the history of the church, this has not been or is presently not the case. In these first few centuries, the centuries following the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, to follow Christ as a Jew almost certainly meant social and cultural ostracization. You no longer went to the temple for sacrifices. You no longer kept dietary laws. You no longer worshipped, or now you worshipped on Sunday, the Lord's Day, and no longer kept the Sabbath. Your parents might say to you, your Jewish parents might say to you, I never want to see you again. You have dishonored everything that makes us who we are. You are no longer my son. You are no longer my daughter. 
If you were Greek or Roman or most to any other culture, you were rejecting your family and you were rejecting, rejecting your cultural gods. You might be excluded from the trade guilds or places of business. So now, being excluded from your place of business because of your following Christ, how will you provide for your family? How will you have any means of social support without family? The very act of baptism itself, uniting yourself to Jesus as a Jew or Gentile, was a decisive moment of faith, of counting the costs. Jesus is asking in these first few centuries, today too, but very clearly in those first few centuries, will you not just come to me, but will you follow me? Renouncing that which will distract you, shedding the extra mountain gear, will you follow me through the blizzard and down the trail to safety? And for some, for many in this country, decisive moments like that may not be required. Required because they might not happen. Some of you have made decisive moves out of, say, Catholicism. You've heard the voice of Jesus, and when the voice of Jesus can contradicts tradition or contradicts other worldly authorities, you've followed his voice, despite the familial or cultural consequences. Many of you have Mormon friends or have had Mormon missionaries into your home. To leave that false church would, to be, would mean to carry your cross and decisively leave behind family to follow Jesus. Mr. M has been asking many of us to pray this week for a couple of folks in Central Asia who are just this close to believing the claims and the identity of Jesus. To do so would mean to decisively leave behind Islam. To come to him would take real faith, would take a reprioritization and a ranking of new loves where Jesus is first and family and cultural standing are distant seconds. And while American culture is rapidly changing around us, and some of us may ultimately end up having to lose our jobs for the sake of Christ in the coming decades, for the most part, these kinds of life-changing, fork-in-the-road moments don't come to us in these ways. Instead, there are thousands and thousands of other little moments of choosing to follow Christ in the very little and then in the very small so that we'll continue to follow him. Maybe in the big, and in fact, we likely won't follow him in the big decisive moments if we haven't been following him in the very little and the very small moments. But I used to think that only the people who became missionaries to outreach people groups really understood or actually believed what Jesus is asking of his followers in Luke 14. That they really were ready to renounce family relationships and societal and cultural standing and to sell it all and go to a place where there was nothing for the sake of Christ. That's what it means to follow Jesus, to do the hard, to do the difficult for him. But over the last decade, as I've seen more and more people renounce their faith, childhood friends, college friends, who just heard the call of the world, and liked that voice more than the voice of Jesus. Very public Christians who are deconstructing and very publicly renouncing their faith in Jesus. Respected pastors, one after the other, who disqualify themselves for listening to the voice of others over the voice of Jesus. I have become more convinced that the radical Christian life is not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is perseverance. That you keep following 
that you keep listening, that you keep believing, that you don't lose your saltiness, that you don't run out of gas, that you count the cost and finish the project until the very end. What does it take? What does it take to follow Jesus? Perseverance. How do we persevere? By listening to the voice of Jesus, by prioritizing him, ultimately over the course of your life, in the little, in the small, in the ordinary, perhaps in the big and the decisive, but that we just keep plodding along. Or as the phrase goes, that we continue in a long obedience in the same direction. Read the Bible, pray, keep coming to church as a non-negotiable in your life. And while we don't often make huge pushes towards church membership, if you've been attending here, can I encourage you to sign up for our four-week membership class, which starts next Sunday, an hour and a half before the service. Becoming a member of a church is one of the most radical things that you can ever say or do. To paraphrase another pastor, becoming a member of a church says that I am committed to this group of people and they are committed to me. I am here to give more than I am to get. I need others to help me and to encourage me. I am needed to help and to encourage others. If you really want to be a countercultural revolutionary, sign up for the membership class. Meet with your elders. Join a local church. Who does that? Weirdos who follow Jesus. In my life and experience, church membership is about the most important means for perseverance. The church is how Jesus holds you, keeps you, shapes you, holds me, keeps me, shapes me. Through personal and individual prayer and Bible reading, yes, but all in the context of us. He saves people, but he saves a people. Together, the flock together, hearing and following the voice of our great shepherd. What does Jesus, what does following Jesus cost you? It costs you your life. He who is not willing to lose his life for the sake of Christ will not find it. But he who loses his life for the sake of Christ will have life, will get it, will find it. It costs your own desires. It costs everything that distracts. But what does it take? Perseverance. Played out in millions of small decisions, many of them bad. But through the grace of our Lord Jesus, who lived and died for us, who has taken us out of a kingdom of darkness and placed us firmly into a kingdom of light for our joy and for our life, he has called us. Might we listen? Might we hear? Next week, we're going to get through the entire chapter of Luke 15. Three parables about lost things, including one of the most famous stories of all time, the story of the so-called prodigal son. Who will hear the voice of the Father? who will rejoice when others hear the voice of the Father. We have much to learn. We have much to understand about who Jesus is as we hear his voice and we follow him. Let's pray for his help. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would hear your voice, that you would tune our hearts to hear and to sing your grace. Lord, we want to believe, help our unbelief. We want to follow you. We want to be your people. We want to be your disciples and to follow you and to to learn from you, to take on your philosophy of life, of heaven and earth and of all things. We pray for your help. We pray for our unbelief. Lord, help us. Help us to 
radically choose following you, to radically choose to follow your voice. Help us to mercilessly cut off other loyalties in our life when they are in contradiction to you. Lord, we're thankful. We don't begrudge the time and the place that we live. We're thankful for a culture where soil can perhaps be fertile, where people can understand things like sin and repentance and hear the gospel and believe. We pray for our brothers and sisters. We pray for our friends in more rocky places where it is so difficult to hear the voice of Jesus and to decisively leave behind an old life and follow him in a new. We pray for courage. We pray for faith. We pray for grace in all of these things. We pray that our friends might see new people come to Christ. Perhaps this week, God, we pray that for even those in this room. We pray for relationships in our own lives where people might hear the voice of Jesus and decisively follow him. Help us to be decisive this week in following you and putting to death our own desires and living into yours for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.